Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. This week, we're once again talking about Me Too in the news industry and what steps British newsrooms must take to address this issue. This month, the New York Times revealed that the Financial Times had killed a Me Too scoop that implicated a fellow journalist. The story was that seven women accused former Guardian columnist Nick Cohen of sexual misconduct. This shows that there is an awful lack of self-scrutiny in the British news industry, but as we recently discussed on the show, it's especially hard for young women journalists to raise the flag amid fears of rocking the boat or being seen as troublemakers. Then again, the onus shouldn't really be on victims to speak up. We'll be talking to the author of the New York Times piece, Jane Bradley, and her core source, journalist Lucy Siegel. The solution, they say, lies in newsroom policy reform and culture change. In other words, being prepared to call out close friends, peers and allies. We'll go into the specific policies and practical steps for newsrooms to hold themselves and their mates more accountable. Stay tuned. Jane, let's start with um, your story that kind of rocked the news industry. You know, everywhere I turn, I see this headline. A British reporter had a big Me Too scoop. Her editor killed it. Would you sum it up for our audience who may not have read the piece? Yeah, so this story was basically um, about two things. One, um, it was about um, seven women who come forward and told their stories, many for the first time, about how a former columnist at the Observer, which is the Guardian sister paper, um, had basically over a two decade period um, made unwanted sexual advances or groped them either in the newsroom or pubs around London. Um, um, so it's a story about a star columnist at one of the biggest and most respected newspapers in the world who is accused of um, sexual misconduct and harassment against at least seven women. But also what was interesting um, to me and kind of what uh, stood out when I first started looking into this story was just this guy's behaviour, a guy called Nick Cohen, was an open secret in the industry. And, you know, you could search Twitter um, and there were his nickname, the octopus, would come up from as far back as 2019, 2020. This wasn't a brand new, you know, shocking thing to a lot of certainly women in the industry. Um, and I was really interested in why the British media hadn't told the story yet when, in their words, it had been such an open secret. So a big part of it was also looking at how the Financial Times, um, who has a brilliant investigations team who had been working on the very same story I was working on, about this pattern of alleged um, harassment basically killed the story after it was filed and why nobody else in the British media has touched it. Mm. So very much the implication there is, you know, the British news industry is not self-scrutinising itself enough, not holding itself to the standards it would um, try to hold others to. Why is this the case? I think that's a million dollar question. So it's a cosy, small industry where everyone knows each other for the most part. Um, Also, you know, there is this traditional drinking culture, gender inequalities in newsroom. And I think that creates quite a ripe environment for asexual misconduct to go on and these stories to be told. And the final point is that we obviously have very stringent libel laws in the UK, right? And that's the point a lot of journalists mentioned to me. 
um, and women as well who wanted to tell these stories. And I'm sure Lucy can talk a bit about this. A lot of the time, our libel laws stop women coming forward to tell their stories, certainly on the record. And it also makes newspapers, newsrooms afraid of telling them because of threats of defamation. And in this case, the columnist Nick Cohen, we know for years has sent pretty aggressive legal threats to people who had dared post or publicise the allegations against him until now. So that, I think, is the upshot of why um, we are so bad as an industry of scrutinising ourselves when it comes to, you know, an issue that we all have in every single newsroom, from the New York Times, the Guardian, the Telegraph. We would have our head in blinkers if we did not acknowledge that this is a problem every newsroom faces. I suppose the the obvious question there is how come you were able to report it then if we're talking about self-scrutinizing in the industry how were you able to to tell it you know it's really interesting being a british journalist working for an american news organization after the me too movement kind of uh was born in the u.s there was this wave of pretty aggressive media investigations reporting on its own in the u.s media um which basically outed a bunch of sexual predators um, and accusations against them. Um, Bill O'Reilly at Fox News, we had Chris Cuomo, um, the New York Times had its own cases. But we did not have any kind of reckoning or similar movement in the UK. And I think I was able to tell the story at the New York Times because we're not an underdog, we're a big legacy organisation, but we are an outsider in the UK. Um, my editors are not friends with other editors in the newsrooms over here as a whole. I am, and I have uh, some relationships of mine or industry, and I have a lot of very good friends at the FT and the Guardian. Um, but for the most part, I know good people, and they know this is a story that needed to be told. So for me, I, as an investigative journalist, I think you're a bit of a renegade, and you're always a bit of an outsider. And I knew the trouble this story was going to cause me in my British media career. But having spoken to like Lucy and these six other women, and I just felt this was so much more important than worrying about my career, getting the story out there and putting the scrutiny on our own industry. And I was very lucky to have editors and lawyers who backed me to the tilt that I know other reporters. Um, and, you know, Madison Marriage at the FT should get big credit here because her and her team did a lot of work getting five women to come forward and trying to tell the story. Their reporting was thorough. It was forensic from everything that I've done to corroborate it. Um, but that she and her team did not have the institutional backing that I had. And I think that's why we got it over the line at the New York Times. Brilliant, Jane. And and you make the perfect segue for me to turn to Lucy at this point, who is one of the incredibly important voices in this in this piece. Um, Lucy, you were faced by, let's call it institutional stonewalling, really, when you raised this complaint against Nick Cohen in 2018. And then you kind of decided to take it to Twitter instead. So would you tell us more about that kind of decision? Yeah, yes. And I'd just like to add that the reason why um, Jane was able to tell this story is because she's fiercely good and she's got backbone and commitment and you know the getting of women on side even journalists is really really hard uh so thank you Jane anyway let's not just you know tell each other how wonderful we are um so yeah so basically I tried to report um Nick Cohen in 2018 when I went to the managing editor I've described that meeting as a car crash and I would defy anyone to go through that um experience and then bounce happily into some sort of discussion. Um, a week later, that same managing editor came back to me with a slightly sort of, I find it quite creepy email 
um, offering for a further chat. And I can't think of many things that I would be less likely to do, but it's definitely high up there. You don't just forget about these things. You, you know, you, you carry them with you. And I'd obviously carried it already with me for a long time. And um, I, in 2021, I was away at a climate conference. Yes, I flew there. Uh, irony. And I was, because I'm actually an environmental journalist, I got on the long haul flight back. I looked at Twitter and I saw it was sort of blowing up around um, a tweet that the um, the lawyer, Jolyon Morm from Good Law Project, had posted, um, essentially asking whether Nick Cohen was the right person to champion women's rights. And I couldn't believe it. And I thought uh, everything came flooding back to me. And I was really, really angry. I wasn't familiar that fam- familiar with that writer's work because I'd studiously avoided him in every format um, since he assaulted me in the newsroom. I just um, read that column and I was so angry. I thought if I get on, if this plane lands after seven or eight hours and I still feel this angry, I will post my experience. And that is as much thought as I gave it in terms of, you know, um, legal repercussions and all the rest of it I just knew that I had to do it because the fact that that tweet existed suggested to me that you know that the more things had happened that um I wasn't the only one I mean I always suspected that I certainly wasn't the only one because I know a little bit about sexual assault and how abusers work and anyway so to cut a long story short um the plane landed and I tweeted a short thread, which is still available. I think it's fairly straightforward. Um, certainly a lot of women got in contact afterwards and said, thank you um, for being straightforward. We're sorry what you went through. I didn't really know what would happen, but um, within a very short space of time, that same senior executive contacted me with um, what I would call a cross email, which I've also published in the New European and other places. And um I felt that they were trying to retrofit um, an investigation and what and, and what happened, and it, it just started to get quite murky. Um, and that was it, really. It was out and about. And I used Twitter because I use Twitter all the time, and that's where my audience was. And I knew that other people would see it because the first thing you're thinking is, how do you stop this from happening to other people? Like that is, you know, primarily the thing. There were also lots of conversations in in the in the discourse, and particularly in the media at the time, about um, in the aftermath of the murder of Sarah Everard escalation of behaviors how abusers work and I thought actually maybe we're getting to a point when we are going to have a grown-up conversation about this and this is the time to really state what happened um I was constantly told you know just even by friends and acquaintances or people getting in touch it's just you or it's just I was woman too or it's just two of you that's not enough or you know but what nobody would touch ironically was no one would do the the reporting like nobody would do it no one would put, put in the time that Madison marriage put in and then Jane put in and then nobody wanted to touch it and that became more severe in terms of injury to me than the actual assault right it sounds like gaslighting from my perspective. I'm glad you say that, Jacob, because that's how it feels. And really, like I'm every day at the moment, I'm struggling because I just look back on what's happened, A, with a, a sense of incredulity, and B, I don't like my industry very much. I don't like it. Mm. And what really struck me like very early on was that 
No one else was looking into this. I thought if that was a thread that had gone that viral and been seen by so many people about another high profile figure in another industry, we as journalists would have been on it. It felt like a story that was easily guessable. And I was like, okay, maybe there's some legal issues. Maybe there's some factual issues. Maybe it's only Lucy. And within about three weeks, it was very clear to me there were no legal issues with Madison marriage at the FT story. There were no reporting issues. There were no holes. You were not the other woman. I knew there were at least five women within about a week. And I just had this question, like, why is nobody else covering it? And it was only when I kind of looked into the wider issue, the wider theme of Me Too and the British media and the coverage of it, that um, I... And I spoke to a bunch of other journalists who say, who felt the same as I do now, who just felt that, look, while the, the media has been amazing at scrutinising and investigating me to in other industries, we are just pretty rubbish at putting that same scrutiny on ourselves. Um, because, and this is a main takeaway from it, is that everyone knows they've got this problem in their own newsroom and they're afraid of the spotlight being turned back. On them, and I don't think it's as simple as some powerful media figure protecting somebody else because they're mates. I think it's more complicated and nuanced than that. I think rather than a protection, often it's just we'd rather just keep our powder dry and not get ourselves in the spotlight. I hadn't necessarily been thinking of it in that context until I learned that the FT was dropping the story because I was so sort of wounded by my own pain and the and the interaction with Guardian News and Media. Because remember, I worked there for 14 years. I was, you know, the ethical living editor. I did the ethical awards. And I feel like they trained me to be the person that I am today. And then I got absolutely like pulverized for using the skills. That they'd given you. <laughs> that, well, they'd given me partly and that they'd nurtured and also um partly had got me that position in the first place this is who I am if some injustice happens I'm going to talk about it secondly to Jane's point you know we're constantly told that the hallmark of great reporting in UK media is relentless Mm -hmm. curiosity not just in UK media Mm -hmm. I had a big run-in with Ipso because the Telegraph um ran a headline way back they ran this really weird piece where it basically said that he'd been suspended in the wake of trans issues or something. So they tried to put the hook of this story um, on trans rights debate. So what I particularly objected to was not just the um, putting of this story and someone's behaviour, misconduct, on a completely unrelated community, but also the fact that our voices were just not in it. There was like a cursory mention in the last paragraph. It was a clickbait thing. And... I realised that I was able to report to Ipso because I was named in the piece, albeit briefly. So that took five or six months. And I really, really disliked Ipso's process, which basically allowed the Telegraph's lawyer to come straight for me. And that was really, really hideous. The reason why I'm making that point is because I think it's really, really important that we understand the, the British media for what it is. And I'm not saying it all has to be nicely and utopian and people's people's complaints don't have to be tested, because of course they do. But even when you've passed X number of thresholds, you are still incredibly vulnerable. And that, to me, is unacceptable. I also think reporters put themselves at great risk. Um, and I think that Jane 
has had and will have a lot of backlash for what she did. And I don't think that that should be overlooked either. So I know that in LA, after Weinstein, for example, it was necessary to have this, um, you know, there's a sort of counter movement, like it's called Hire Me Too for actors. Because, you know, the thing is, these stories come out, then we all get dropped and forgotten and we're sort of labelled as troublemakers. You know, I take a lot of things from that response, though, and I take the the frustration of the double standards. I take the frustration of having to carry so much on your own and having the constant setbacks. But what I also understand is that, you know, part of your ability to, to go so public, Lucy, was you'd reached a point in your career, as I understand it, where you weren't really reliant on The Guardian so much for employment and for income. So you were kind of able to put yourself out there a little bit. You didn't matter so much if you burned, burned that bridge. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I I may come to regret that. But yeah, that's how it felt at the time. But but also you, you kind of saw maybe a motive to protect younger people in, in the workforce as well. Is that about right? Definitely. Definitely. I think Jane describes it well in her piece. I can't remember the exact line, Jane, but it's something like you, you, you um, report how I used to sort of shepherd work experience people around the newsroom like a mother hen. Yeah. What is it? Like a mother hen crossing a busy road. Yeah, yeah, with my little chicks. And um, uh, a couple of my friends who are much younger than me and work in journalism, work in the media, were like, that's you, that's you. They were like, they really recognised that. And um, I was also, so just on a very practical level, I was getting to an age where my friends' children were coming to do work experience and stuff like that. Sorry, I was sounding incredibly nepotistic which is also another uh, discussion but you know I suddenly went into massive panic I was in an admin role when I was assaulted there was such a power differential and you know there's also been cases of young journalists coming in wanting advice you know these guys have often have this profile as if oh you want advice he'll give you advice and they're the famous kind of columnists that wasn't my experience mine was more of a sort of hit and run but you know, these these things are all about power differentials. And I just cannot stand by and think that while this industry is supposedly opening up and inviting more people in who are not from media backgrounds, whose parents don't are not editors and all the rest of it, mine mine are not from media background. Um, I don't I, I just think it puts them at risk. And if the safeguarding apparatus or architecture isn't there it puts them at risk from this sort of manipulation. And I want to go back again, because often what I found is that because we have such a culture, this is no big revelation, a carry on culture, our slapping, ha ha ha. You know, these are not like, um, these are not like stupid, just forget about it and move on details. And actually, Jane was one of the people who I think said to me quite a few times, stop minimizing what happened to you, because I did have a real tendency to do that. And that was on me, I shouldn't have done it. But they do have impact, sexual assaults have impact. And I don't want them happening to other people because they impact whole careers. They impact how you see yourself. This is an industry which is also built on confidence as well as ability. There's ingredients to making it in this industry. And I don't want people, young people coming into this industry and having part of that sort of magical formula taken from from them. Sorry, that sounds a bit woo-woo, but you know what I mean. It's just not on. It's not on. And the first thing that I think we should be doing is protecting our talent supply line. I really do. 
And just just quickly on that power dynamic point, when I first started reporting this story, that's also the point that really stuck out and concerned me as I spoke to more and more women about the experiences they had to share about um, them and uh, Nick Cohen, the columnist. Um, it was very clear very, very early on that in most of the cases, the women he targeted were either just starting out in their careers and incredibly young in their early 20s, or they were freelancers or had some other vulnerability, mental health issues, things like that, who were trying to break into the Guardian or the Observer. And in a couple of cases, um, they actually ended up having this meeting, this this uh, meeting at a pub, whatever, with uh, Cohen under the premise of him meeting them to help with their careers. And for, to me, that is what was especially concerning and especially problematic because power dynamics can exist in within newsrooms as much as they can within the CEO of a company versus like, uh, you know, a secretary and things like that. And I think sometimes as an industry, we're a bit blind to that. I was just just to pick up on something that you just said, you, you listed some vulnerabilities and you actually said freelancers was a vulnerability and it is a vulnerability. And this industry increasingly runs on um, freelancers um, who have very little um, right to reply. Um, you know, we had, you know, one of the um, women in this case, um, quite a lot of time was spent trying to discount her complaint because she was a freelancer. You know, and it is extraordinary how little protection there is. So uh, we really need to, this. This industry needs to get its house in order. Let's put it that way. If you tuned into our episode a fortnight ago, we discussed the implications of Jane and Lucy's Me Too story for young women journalists with two of the editors of Empowered Journalism, a student publication led by women. Three key themes emerged. One. This isn't just a newsroom issue. Young women are worried about sexual abuse and harassment wherever they go, but that doesn't mean that newsrooms should not be held to higher standards. Two, journalism is a competitive industry, and once their foot is in the door, women are reluctant to rock the boat. And three, that extends to reporting sexual misconduct. There's a genuine fear that blowing the whistle will lead to them gaining a reputation for being a troublemaker. I think it would be a difficult topic to kind of approach as an early career journalist, I don't necessarily think we feel like we would have the, that kind of authority in the newsroom to be able to flag something up. But then there's that kind of... I don't know, I'd get a big sense of, like, guilt at the same time. That was Shannon McGugan from Empowered Journalism speaking there. Coming back to Jane Bradley from the New York Times, she says that this aligns with what she's heard from her sources, that they feel it would be career damaging or career jeopardising to report sexual misconduct. I heard so much of this word troublemaker, not wanting to be seen as a troublemaker or a HR problem when they were just starting out in their careers. And I understand why, particularly starting out in their in their industry. I I do think systems have improved today since 2009, 2007, early, early noughties when um, the, the beginning of this period uh, of uh, our reporting, uh, the offences began. Um, and I know that certainly our newsroom, other newsrooms I've worked in, the BBC, BuzzFeed, things like that, there are better reporting processes as a whole, including, you know, um, kind of anonymous whistleblowing helplines where you don't even have to speak to someone on HR 
if that was me personally, I think I would feel more comfortable if I was worried about my career going to an external third party anonymously than the head of HR who, you know, whatever they say, we all know they have some influence or involvement in your career progression at the company. Um, I would say, at least coming from it from a reporter's perspective, is reporting it to your institution, your employer, really helps one um, strengthen your case um, when it comes to you saying, um, you know, why wasn't action taken? Why wasn't I protected? They can't pretend not to know, right? And that's the key thing. If you report it, they can't pretend they didn't know. And when I was reporting this story, one of my central questions for all the women and a ton of other journalists I spoke to in the newsroom was, were there any other complaints before Lucy's, uh, after Lucy's? How many complaints were there? And did management know? And the senior management uh, I spoke to just said, look, we, we didn't know. We just didn't know. So how could we do something if we didn't know? And my point being, there was this two decade of complaints. There's a pattern. This happened in your newsroom. It happened in the pub after work. How could you not know? And why are you putting the onus on the women? to tell you like isn't it your responsibility to be aware and protect young women in your newsroom and other women in your newsroom but for me the fact Lucy had made this complaint along with the second woman the copywriter allowed me to go much tougher on the Guardian on Guardian News and Media in terms of accountability because they couldn't say we didn't know if Lucy or nobody else had complained that would have made it a harder story for me as an investigative journalist to tell. But I know Lucy will come at it from a different perspective. Lucy, I want to pass the baton to you for this, but let me frame it in this in this way. Jane says there very, very correctly, we need to create that pattern of people surfacing complaints, but we've already explored here that it's not necessarily easy to do that. For any women of any age, frankly, listening and who maybe share those kind of three concerns we've just touched on there, what would you say? What is going to give them the courage to speak up and and create that pattern of of uh, complaints well it, it's not just about courage because you know anybody who is in this situation that i found myself in is probably a courageous person to have kept going frankly and you know there's there's lots of reasons why people can't report um and it, it, it's no blame on them for not reporting so first of all we do need system change um, I, my whole my whole career, really, I'm interested in system change and how you shift systems. You know, I'm not that interested in individuals and why they behave really badly and then won't take responsibility. I'm more interested in why systems and institutions behave the way they do and reform. I think the whistleblowing is a step forward. And if that had been available to me, you know, back in the day, then I could have done that. Um, if I'd have trusted it. And it's something actually that I've written a lot about the textile supply chain and sweatshops in the fast fashion industry. It's something that they have, you know, toyed with bringing in. Um, And it does help to protect to a certain extent. Um, One of the things we need is complete root and branch. It should just be illegal to use NDAs for starters. I mean, that my story, my personal story doesn't concern NDAs, but I know from other people that a lot of women in this country, working media, who've tried to complain or tried to hold um, people to account serious sexual abuse cases um, have been subject to NDAs. There does need to be a very specific understanding of how complaints can be hushed up and how people can be deterred from complaining. If I look at what I went through, 
part of the issue for me is, and I know this because I applied a subject access request and I got very heavily redacted uh, account of what of this supposed investigation. And one of the things it shows is them trawling my social media. And I'm called vindictive and out of control by people who were in that meeting. Who was in that meeting? Who are these people? And why are they pronouncing and dismissing my complaint against a man when I have been assaulted on the basis of being of using angry words on social media. And the issue for me is that if you come to these investigations from a headspace, if you like, or a mindset where you are going to punish the complainant or look for a perfect complainant who passes every threshold and these are arbitrary thresholds that are put in by institutions these are not we weren't we weren't suing guardian news and media this is not a criminal inquiry they are bringing up things like their own statute of limitations i was told my case was too old at one point you know all of these things so the first thing if you are going to complain is you have to be prepared to face up to this bullshit the other thing that I think needs to be looked at is whether it's right for these institutions to use quite hardcore legal processes and advice on complainants. Um, because you basically can face a wall of HR who at the end of the day seem there to protect the reputation of the company. Um, and then you you have lining up alongside them, you have legal pro- um, professionals um, who are very experienced at batting back these sort of complaints and quashing, you know, people who think they're just individual women, you know, they, they don't always realise that there's a collective of them, they don't organise, because it's very dangerous to do so. So you're really facing a wall of obstruction. And I have to say this, I would not have been able to do any of this if it weren't for Good Law Project and Jolly and Morm. And, you know, they were just offering me advice. And sometimes I needed someone to say to me, this is not your fault. I also just wanted to touch on your very important point about NDAs, because I have done a lot of Me Too reporting over many years now. And NDAs are constantly this extra hurdle. Not only me as a reporter has got to get over, but in silencing women. So at least in this case, strangely, um, provides a shield for um, those who are accused as well. And I think the fact, like, I'm used to coming up with NDAs when I'm, you know, reporting on billionaires or oligarchs or, you know, uh, big corporations. I think it was particularly disappointing to come across it when I'm reporting on another newsroom, a newspaper like The Guardian in particular, who I've had a lot of respect for. Um, and newsrooms, I, this is my personal opinion, I do not believe should use NDAs on their own staff. The New York Times' union recently won a big victory where part of the terms we got management to agree to, and this is the union in the US, not the UK, um, was to outlaw the use of NDAs in sexual harassment and discrimination cases. And I think it's great that our newsroom now doesn't use that. And um, it's a shame that we did before. And I know there are other newsrooms in the UK, ITN, there's been a lot of publicity around in recent years. Uh, I think the BBC as well, um, who do still use them. Um, And I think, uh, as Lucy said, kind of cutting out the use of NDAs against its own staff would be a big step forward. Loads of great advice in there, Jane. Um, It certainly was one of the things that came back to me about the reticence to go and speak to other journalists if they had those kind of concerns, because I think their concern was more about hurting their employability and hurting their career. You'd think employers would be drawn towards 
fierce and vocal women journalists who would like to be seen as upholding sort of standards in the industry and would that be any solace to to women journalists if you told them that it's a good question and it's a difficult one to answer something I'm always aware of when I'm um, trying to convince someone to go on the record is I don't want to bullshit them and I don't want to overpromise and say something's going to be okay or something's not a risk if it's not and I know in this industry you cannot say every new Zoom wants someone as vocal or fierce or outspoken or stubborn as Lucy (laughs) (laughs) or some of the other women. Well, that would explain explain why I don't work in a newsroom anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But there are newsrooms who do, and those are the newsrooms I would want to work on. If If I was working in a newsroom who did not want people like that and would punish someone for speaking out about something important and unjust, it's not the kind of newsroom mm-hmm. I would want to work on. And I do think that attitude is increasingly changing. And um, they do see that, no, actually, people like this are an asset to our newsroom. Um, but sadly, it's not the case in every newsroom. And I just think... Um, That's a cultural shift. There was a lesson. There was a lesson. You know what? Uh, there was a lesson I have always remembered when I was pretty young journalist, about 24, 25, I was working at the BBC, my first, the first museum I'd worked in. And um, um, so basically, I worked at BBC Panorama around the time they broadcast their Jimmy Savile investigation into the BBC cover up. And I was friends, still am friends with some of the key investigative journalists who worked really hard to expose it. Um, and I always remember um, a journalist uh, called Myrian Jones. He's one of the key reporters who, uh, producers who exposed the Jimmy Savile um, story and the BBC's cover up of it. And I always remember him telling me a story about a, a meeting he'd just been on with um, the then editor, Tom Giles, someone I also hugely admire, and a bunch of other colleagues where, uh, where Tom basically said, right, we're going to tell this story. It's not going to help anyone's career. It's probably going to ruin your career. You're going to piss off a lot of people in this newsroom. Who's in? And Marion just like <laughs> describing this wave of hands that went up and said, yes, I'm in. And it, it stayed with me because the lesson it taught me was about the importance of like scrutinizing your own industry and the devastating, you know, potentially devastating consequences it can have when you don't speak up. And to me, I was just like, I want to be one of those journalists always in every meeting who puts my hand up, even when it's not going to help my career, it's going to piss off a bunch of people. I want to still tell that story if it's an important story or speak out if it's something important. Um, so, so yeah, so those guys, those guys have a lot to answer for. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I, I mean, I would, I would say a couple of things. In my own defence, I've, I've also, I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm a very collaborative person. I'm a very solutions person. I actually love working as part of a team. So I've worked in television for a long time. And the only time that I will really, really um, go for it is is when I feel like a deep injustice or I know something's not right. And I'm old enough and ugly enough and confident enough that I know what those stories are. So... I think some younger people are just instinctively like that. And I think that's a great attribute to have. For for anyone listening in, they've maybe seen or experienced sexual misconduct in, in the newsroom. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. They don't know who to speak to. What's your parting words of wisdom to them? Make sure you do your research. So find out what there is available, what means of reporting there is, and be clear 
about how you will be represented. Ask any questions that you need to ask anonymously. And only when you are sure that you are happy and protected um, will you move forward. I think that's brilliant advice and I would echo it. Um, um, And I would just say, keep a record of everything keep emails keep texts take notes after your meeting like Lucy did so brilliantly here make sure there's documentation so if something if it doesn't go as you as you want it to go you can't be misrepresented or they can't say they didn't know um and also do report it unless there's some you know you have absolutely zero faith in the process or there's some personal reason please report it if you can a lot of the women i spoke to this story who didn't report it felt guilt about not reporting their experiences and that they'd let down other women or that they had been a bad ally first of all when if you're considering reporting it if you're in a place mentally where you feel and career-wise strong enough able to report it great definitely do it if you do not don't report it your first duty of care is to yourself right and if you're not mentally in a place where you feel like you can go through this right now right and you can always do it later on but you your main duty of care is to yourself right and if you're in a place then think about how you can help others and you know put flag in the ground say this is an issue and the management know about it now and i'm really pleased i could do that but don't feel guilt if you're not able to help other people or report it perfect advice and and most of that if not all sounds like fundamental skills that Joe must have so maybe employ some of those natural reporting skill sets that that you have so Jane Lucy thank you ever so much for your time today Uh, it's been a blast thank you so much thanks for having us cheers thank you there's a lot to take in from this episode but one point from Jane really sticks out This story isn't really about the Financial Times or The Guardian, it's about the British news industry. If Nick Cohen worked in another sector, maybe he would have been exposed long ago. Newsrooms have a bad habit of letting known predators go under the radar and discourage victims from speaking up. That needs to change, because if we can't trust our industry peers, how can we expect our audience to trust us? In a right of reply, an FT spokesman said in response to the New York Times article, We were extremely disappointed by the New York Times article, which was very unfair to the FT. The FT has a strong reputation for exposing abuse of power and harassment, as many of our recent investigations show. The FT is committed to becoming a more diverse organisation and promoting inclusion as both an employer and a publisher. We report each year on the progress we have made towards building a more inclusive culture as well as our goals. This conversation is far from over, and I want to hear what you have to say on the matter. I'm on Twitter at JPG Journalism and on email at jacob at journalism.co.uk. If you like this episode, you can check out all of our episodes on all your usual podcast platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>